Matthew 5. Let's read verse 19 and 20. So as we're coming through the Sermon on the Mount together, we're in Matthew 5, verse 19 and 20. We'll read it and pray. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we are so unworthy to get to sit here this morning and to open up your word and read it and hear from you. We're so unworthy. God, we just want to give you praise. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to ourselves or leaving us to our own wicked thoughts, our own foolishness. But God, you've given us your word, and we praise you for that. Thank you so much, God, for these words. Lord, we tell you every week, we praise you every week. But God, we don't take it for granted. It's not old to us, Lord. God, this has not escaped us that you've given us, you've given us your written word. Lord, please help us this morning. Give us ears to hear. Lord, so many, there's so many across this room that are your children. Those that you, you've saved us, Lord. And you've brought us near to yourself. Now, God, I ask you, please. We believe it, Lord, that unless, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. That apart from you, we can do nothing. We believe it. So God, we can't even hear these truths this morning unless you help us. God, please, please help us. And we praise you, God, that we, we can ask you that standing on your promises, Lord. You told us to ask and seek and knock and that you would open the door and that you would be found, that you would hear us and you would answer us. And so we're asking and seeking and knocking right now, Lord. God, give us light from your word. Help us to see. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew 5, 19, and our verse this morning starts with a therefore. Therefore. So there's what we're about to see in verse 19 and 20 is an application of some things that have already gone before. So let's do a little bit of a review. So we're going to zoom out to the sermon as a whole, the sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Who is this sermon to? Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. Jesus is preaching to his people, to his disciples. And you got the crowds kind of gathered around. And they're catching a little bit of it. They're listening on as well. But he gathers up his disciples to say these things. 
to them. So what's being, what's being given to them in the Sermon on the Mount? What we're seeing here is what John Stock calls a Christian counterculture. You got the cultures of all the kingdoms of the world, but King Jesus is giving you the culture of his kingdom right now. This is the Christian counterculture. This is what the church looks like according to Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. So how should we hear this? As we continue on through the Sermon on the Mount together, how should we hear it? Hold your place and turn back to chapter 7. And after Jesus finished his teaching, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 gives us some insight into how you should hear his word this morning and how you should hear the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So number one, brothers and sisters, do that. Be astonished at the teaching of Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. Number two, verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So how should you hear it? Be astonished at his teaching and hear it as you're hearing a king with authority. Hear it with a submissive heart to obey Jesus. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as you zoom in to the Sermon on the Mount, the section that we're in, beginning in verse 17, it begins in verse 17 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 48. And we call this section the laws of the kingdom. So we've already seen the characteristics of kingdom citizens. We've seen kingdom citizens' influence on the world. And then now in this section, verse 17 through 48, we see the laws of the of the kingdom. And the way it's laid out for us is the foundational statement is verse 17 through 20. If you just kind of glance at it, where Jesus says, he, he leads out by saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He says, Not one dot, not one iota will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then he moves from that foundational statement, verse 17 through 20, into six contrast statements, examples where he says, Beginning in verse 21 all the way to 48, he says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. You've heard it said this, but I say to you this. And he does that six times. Now, remember, we'll come to this more later. That's not Moses versus Jesus. That's a pharisaical understanding of the law of Moses versus Jesus's true interpretation of the law of Moses. That's what we're dealing with when we get to that section. So, if you zone in to the section we're in, that foundational statement, verse 17 through 20, verse 17 and 18, as we, as we looked at last week, is Christ and the law. And then we come to the therefore, verse 19. And what we see in verse 19 and 20 is Christians and the law. You've got Christ and the law. Therefore, what should Christians do? In verse 19 and 20, it gives us Christians and the law. And the law. So as we focus in on verse 19 and 20, we're going to take it in three parts. We're going to take it in three parts. You've got number one, the warning. Number two, the call. And number three, the way to enter the kingdom. The warning, the call, and the way to enter the kingdom. So let's start with number one, the warning. And it's verse 19. First half of verse 19, 19a, it says this. Listen to the warning. Therefore, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what we're being told here, brothers and sisters, is to beware of some things. Beware of relaxing the commandments of Jesus. Beware of relaxing the law. Beware of relaxing His commands. What does it mean to relax the commands of God? This word means to loosen. It's to loosen these commands. Think about um, in Mark 1-7, we're told about, uh, uh, you know, John the Baptist says he's not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. So it's to untie the commands, to untie the commandments of God. So think that sandal is... is is bound to his foot and to untie it or to loosen it is to make it no longer binding on his foot. Beware, brothers and sisters, of relaxing. Jesus tells us of relaxing, of of saying, that's not binding on me. God's commandments aren't binding on me. You see, to do that is the same heart, it's the same mistake, the same heart of Psalm 2-3. Do you remember Psalm 2? You read through Psalm 2? And you've got those people that are rebelling against God and against His Christ. And the way they say it, they say, cast His cords off of us. We don't want to be bound by His commands. That's to relax the commandments of God. God's Word, God's commandments are binding on us. And we're being warned here not to relax those commands. Now, He goes on to tell us how the scribes and the Pharisees were relaxing the commandments of God. And that's important because it's really clear when you read about uh, verse, verse 21 through 48, those six contrast statements, right? You have heard it said this, but I say to you this. What we're seeing there is this is the way that the Pharisees relaxed the commandments of God. Now, how did they do it? How did they do it? Well, everything that they, they thought about the commandments of God was an external religion. It's, well, I, don't, I haven't murdered anyone. But, God get, but Christ gets down deeper and says, yeah, but what about anger in your heart? They say, well, I haven't committed adultery. He says, yeah, but what about lust in your heart? You see, they, they loosen or relax the commandments by making them merely external. They're merely on the outside and they miss the heart commands, the heart standards of God. And so they were law relaxers. Now, that's a mindset shift for many people. To think about the Pharisees as law relaxers. Now, so think about how they relaxed it. They, they took the commandments of God and made it merely an external religion that missed the heart of those things. Just adultery, not lust. Murder, but not hatred. Okay, they missed it in that way. What are some other ways that the commandments of God can be relaxed? What are some other ways that the commandments of Scripture can be relaxed. And I'll give you seven ways. One, I can't control how I feel. Think about that statement. I can't control how I feel. Now think about that statement, especially in response to a command like this. God's word says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And somebody says, that's not binding on me. I can't control how I feel. 
That's a false mindset. It's a mindset that says God, He can control our external behavior, but He has no He has no binding. His commands have no binding on our internal behavior. That internal heart commands. Think about all the commands of Scripture that say things like that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about those kind of commands. Even in the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's affections involved in loving God and loving other people. And what you're saying, I can't control how I feel. God can't, He can't hold me accountable on that level. And so like the Pharisees, they're given over to God can only hold me accountable to that external stuff that I can control because I can't control how I feel. And I realize that certainly those commands are more difficult, right? The command to not forsake the assembling of the saints is not hard. Just be there. But the command that says rejoice in the Lord or be, let your spirit be full of fire and zeal, Romans chapter 12, those kind of commands are things that need to be cultivated. I'm not saying they're not more difficult, but that mindset that relaxes the commands and says God can give me the external, but that internal stuff is out of my control. That mindset relaxes the commandments of God. Number two, false views of love. False views of love. Some people think of love as this sort of floaty thing. It's just this sort of floaty thing out there. It's like, man, forget about biblical uh, commandments. Forget about Scripture. Forget about the law and obedience to God's Word. We just need to love. And love is talked about like this floaty thing out there that nobody knows how to define. Whereas the Scripture doesn't do that. I want you to think about this. Literally, Jesus puts forward love as the summary of the law. What's the summary of all of God's commands in the law? What's the summary? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. It's not disconnected. It's not, yeah, yeah, that's that law thing, but we just love. Jesus did this too. John 14, 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. You see, Jesus connects these things. So don't relax the commandments of God by a false view of love. Number three, cerebral Christianity. And what I mean by that is an intellectualism. Christianity is all theology, but no boots on the ground. I don't have to worry about that, you know, that obedience, all that kind of stuff. That's not what I, I just want to know a lot of stuff. Cerebral Christianity, relaxing the commandments of God. Why? Why do you get to do that? Because I know so much. I'm so smart in the scriptures. And this is the way that God's commands get relaxed. Listen to this verse. It's very important. James 1.22. It says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. See, cerebral Christianity is hearing only. They hear a lot. They know a lot. But they're not doers of the word. Next phrase says, deceiving yourselves. Why is it so deceitful? Because you, you know so much. You feel so spiritual. And yet there's no obedience. No boots on the ground. So relaxing of the commandments through intellectualism. Number four. Slow obedience. Slow obedience. I love this verse, Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. It says, I thought about my ways, 
And I turned my feet to your statutes. And I made haste and did not delay to keep your commands. You hear the, you hear the urgency there? I made haste and I did not delay to keep your commands. There's a way to relax the urgency of the commands of God in your life by slow obedience. It's lazy obedience. It's slothful Christianity that doesn't feel the urgency to obey God now. It's always someday or get around to it at some point. Instead of make haste, don't delay to keep His commands. We got a saying around our house with our children. It's slow obedience is no obedience. Slow obedience is no obedience. Make haste. Do not delay to keep His commands. Don't relax the the urgency of the commands of God. Number five, charismatic Christianity. Charismatic Christianity. Charismatic Christianity is mainly led by these inner impulses. It's just, how do I get led by God? It's these inner impulses. I just feel like this is the right thing to do. And then attributing, attributing those inner impulses to the leading of the Spirit of God. Charismatic Christianity does that a lot. They tend to value feelings or spontaneous intuition. They value that more than the written word of God. They tend to think, yeah, going by the written word of God, that's Old Testament stuff. But now we're led by that, that, um, that inner feeling I have of what seems to be right. What, what I think gets ignored is the words of Jesus here. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Or the examples in the scriptures of New Testament Christians being led by the written word of God. Listen, you want to be led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote a book. And he didn't just write an Old Testament, he wrote a new. So I encourage you not, not to relax the commandments of God and ignore the written word of God because of an overvaluing of inner Spontaneous intuition. Number six, comparison Christianity. Comparison Christianity. That's judging your obedience by looking around at everybody else. So your standard for obedience is no longer God's word. But your standard for obedience is what's everybody else doing around me? It typically turns into don't religion. Well, I'm obedient. How do you know you're obedient? Well, because I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I had not killed nobody. And, hadn't. And, and you begin to call your obedience uh, or, or consider yourself obedient by comparing yourself to those that are around you rather than your standard being God's word. It's comparison Christianity, and it relaxes the standard of the Scriptures. Beware of that. We teach, you know, another thing that, that we say in our home at least we try to teach our kids in our home, is that our kids will learn to stand when no one else is standing. That they will learn to, to, to swim against the current, to swim upstream. doesn't matter what everyone else is doing around you. What does God say? And I think we would do good to, to heed that same advice. Number seven, and lastly, worldly views of confession. Worldly views of confession. This is... Confession of sin as a replacement for real obedience. Confession of sin as a replacement for real obedience. Now, I think this happens a lot. Uh, I'm not trying to pick on college folks, but a lot in college groups get together and we just confess our sin, confess our sin, and it's a good little moment, but it's not, it's not being used as a means to go forward and obey God, kill sin and obey God. 
It, it, Proverbs 28, 13 says this. He who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses it, so that's to be valued. But it says this, whoever confesses it and forsakes it will have mercy. You see, this worldly view of confession is a valuing of the confession, but not a valuing of the second part of that verse, which is the forsaking of sin and obeying God. Confession of sin is meant to be a means to help us to kill sin, not to become comfortable with it. And so these views, these worldly views of confession, they can lead us to relax the commandments of God. So I'm saying all this to try to bring what the Pharisees were doing in this external religion. They thought about the standard of God as something that they could actually keep. Why? Because I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not committing adultery. And they missed the heart commands, the heart standards of God. And because of that, they were law relaxers. And we don't want to be law relaxers in any way. That's the warning that's being given to us here. Now, there's another part to the warning. Not only beware of relaxing the commandments of God, but beware of, look at it in verse 19, teaching others to do the same. You see that? Those who relax these commandments and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So we'll be warned about teaching others to do the same. Now, there's just a general warning here. Think about James, uh, think about James 3.1. It says, let not many of you be teachers because you'll come under a stricter judgment. Now, I realize that's talking about teachers in a formal sense as pastors and teachers and leaders of local church. Let not many of you be that because you'll come under a stricter judgment. But there's a principle to take away from that, right? That the more you're looking to influence others, and I hope you are for the glory of Christ, looking to influence others. And the more you're influencing others with the teaching of the word of God, the more you need to think about the accountability of that. Think about that. They come under a stricter judgment. There's a principle to take away there. Now, I think it's just a truth that those who, those who tend to relax the commandments of God, they love company. Those who tend to relax the commandments of God, like we're being warned about, they love other. They want other people to relax the commandments of God as well. Now, when I was thinking about this, I thought about something from my past. Uh, when I was in high school, I remember you got the baseball team, right? And you got ninth graders through 12th graders on this baseball team. And, and we had a new coach come along during that time, and he ran us to death. I mean, he was, he was a hard, uh, grinded-out type coach. And, and these juniors and seniors had been there for a while. So you know what they had learned to do in those runs? Their goal in those runs was to relax as much as possible. Okay? They wanted to relax. The coach says run. They want to do it in such a way that, that they can please the coach, and he's not making them run more, but, not, but don't go over that. Just do enough to, to relax and be comfortable. But then you got folks like us coming along. We were ninth graders coming in. Well, we're trying to win a position. So we're about to run, right? And so we're jumping out of it. And I just remember that pressure coming from those that just wanted to do just enough to get by. I remember the pressure being felt from them. Don't you, you night cutters, don't you do that. Don't you run out ahead. Because when you do that, then we got to go. And they hated that. They despised it. I felt that pressure of slow down. Quit obeying those commands to run. Slow down. So what are law relaxers? Would you think, bring that into law relaxers. Those who want to relax the law. 
What do they typically say? What do they typically call someone who wants to strictly and diligently and lovingly obey the commandments of God? What do they usually say about those kind of people? They're quick to say they are legalist. Legalist. Now, like I said last week, legalism is a real thing and it's to be despised. You can't earn your way without Jesus into his favor, into eternity. You can't grow in Christ's likeness by yourself with the standard of God. You need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You need grace. Legalism is to be despised. But listen, legalism is not diligently obeying God's word. But law relaxers would have you say, yeah, it is. And they would want, to, they would want you to feel that pressure. Slow down. You're walking in legalism. Just slow down down and it's wrong a couple couple things here temptations to loosen or relax the commandments of God I want to give you just two two uh, examples to watch out for one is for parents parents beware of relaxing the commandments of God towards your children towards your children and let me explain that why would a parent want to relax the commandments of God towards their children. And I've felt this, and I bet many of you have felt this too. It's this mindset that says, wait a minute. You know, I've got the Holy Spirit, and I'm saved, and I'm, re- I'm regenerated, and I'm trying to walk with God, and I'm in Christ, and yet I see struggles in my own heart with sin. I'm having trouble obeying God, but I'm striving for it. But what about this child? Maybe this, if the child is unconverted, this unconverted child, can I hold out that same standard to this unconverted child? Won't that just produce a little Pharisee trying to obey the law? And I want you to think about this. That will not, that will not, here's what will produce a little hypocritical Pharisee. If you loosen the commandment, if you relax the commandment like the Pharisees and get it down to a level where those kids go, I can obey that. I'm good to go. I can obey that. And now they're moving towards hypocrisy and external religion, but no heart standard. They're moving towards, I did it. I obeyed the law. I kept it. I'm righteous on my own merit. So parents, listen to me. Don't relax the law for your children. Hold it out so that that law will lead them to see their own sin and their need for Christ and to see the standards of God and hunger and thirst for real righteousness, not hypocritical, pharisaical, Righteousness, hold out that standard to your children. Now, second temptation, I believe. I want you to think about the responsibility that we have as fellow church members to hold each other to a standard, a standard that's given to us by God. We have a responsibility in a local church to hold each other to a certain standard. Okay? Now, what is something, this is a temptation that gets in the way of that so often. Well, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not supposed to judge others, am I? I don't want to be judgmental. And that mindset can so often keep us from loving each other enough to hold each other to a godly standard. And I want to give you a verse that maybe it'll once and for all help you with that mindset. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just read it. It's verse 12 and 13. It says this. For what have, I to, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Talking about those outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
So he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those in the church that you are to judge? Now, maybe when you hear judge, you've got all kind of, you know, worldly things attached to that. And, and if you do, you know, just get rid of it, reconsider it, define it from the scriptures. But there's this sense when, when somebody says, well, I don't want to hold my brother or sister to a standard. I don't want to love them enough to build them up and turn their eyes to God's word or to correct when it's needed or rebuke when it's needed. I don't want to do that. Why? Because I don't want to be judgmental. That's a false mindset. And it's a mindset that will keep you from holding out this standard for the church. And instead, what will you do? You'll relax the standard. You'll relax the law, relax the commandments of God. I think we need to be warned about that. We need to be warned about all of this. Okay. Now, number two, the call. The call is found in verse 19. Second part of verse 19, 19b. It says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them, whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a call to do and teach. Brothers and sisters, do and teach. This is Christian obedience and Christian ministry. Christian obedience and Christian ministry. Let's start with Christian obedience. Think about what it says right here. But whoever does them. That's what it says in verse 19. Whoever does them. Whoever does what? Whoever does them. Well, the context here is one of the least of these commandments. So we're not even just talking about the big ten, right? The ten commandments or, or the big two. The love, your, love God and love your neighbor's self. We're not even talking. We're talking about obedience to the least of these commandments. We're talking about a careful, diligent study of God's word with a submissive heart. To, I want to obey my Savior. Come into that. Brothers and sisters, come into that. That's the call. To do even the least of these commandments. Listen to this verse. You can jot it down, but don't flip there. Psalm 119, verse 4. Psalm 119, verse 4, it says this. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Brothers and sisters, that's not legalism. Diligent study of God's word and diligent obedience, even to the least of these commandments, is not legalism. That's obedience. That's love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, Christian obedience is a wonderful topic to dig into and to study, um, to consider on your own sometime. Let me just give a few things uh, that answer this question. Think about Christian obedience. What makes obedience Christian? What makes it Christian? Let me give you four things that makes it Christian. Number one, and most obviously, it's obedience to Christ, the King. I know that seems obvious, but here's what I mean. Obedience is not, you just just be a good guy. Just be a good old boy. It's not that. It's, it's, think about John 14, 21 again. Whoever has my commandments, you got to have his commandments. You go and you seek him out. You want to hear from the King. And that tells you what obedience looks like as you hear from King Jesus. It's obedience to the king, to Jesus himself. Not just being a good person. Number two, it's an obedience that's rooted in dependency on Jesus. Think about that. We're talking about an obedience 
That's not self-reliant. It's not self-confident. You can do this. All you need is just give me, give me the standard, God, and I got it. It's not that kind of obedience. It's a kind of obedience that is dependent on Jesus. Here's what I mean. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're being told the value of obedience. But what were we, what were we told right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes, right? Do you remember those Beatitudes and the dependency on Jesus that was found there? The Beatitudes tell us this, that this is what a Christian looks like. A Christian looks like one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means they're spiritually bankrupt. They feel their need for Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. Why do they mourn? See, they feel their need for Jesus. They mourn over their sin. They feel their need for Christ, their dependency on Jesus. Blessed are the meek. Oh man, they know how small they are and they feel their need for Christ. They, they feel the dependency on Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't have it yet, but they long for it. They need Christ to give it to them. So that's not being thrown out. We're talking about an obedience to God of the least of these commandments, but that's wrapped up in, I need Christ for this. John 15, apart from him, I can do nothing. Jesus said that apart from, from me, you can do nothing. And so there's a dependency on Christ in this obedience. Number three, it's an empowered obedience, an empowered obedience. And what I mean by that is, like I just said, without Christ, you do not have the power to obey. You might know the standard of God's law, but you've got zero power to conform to it. But with Christ... When somebody is converted, when someone is saved, think about what happens. Jesus becomes their great high priest who's always interceding on their behalf, Hebrews 7. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. You've got Jesus as your great high priest. And the scripture says you're given a new heart and a new spirit. So now you are empowered to obey the commands of God. So it's an empowered Obedience. And number four, it's an expected obedience. These aren't, these aren't just, you know, the Sermon on the Mount laying out this Christian culture, this Christian counterculture. It's not just suggestions. It's not just put out there suggestions that, that, uh, that, that his church can never meet up to. It's not the fullest way to understand this. This is, Jesus expects obedience to these things. Think about it. Jesus is the one that said, why do you call me Lord and yet, and yet not do the things that I command you. Why do you call me Lord and yet not do the things that I command you? Luke 6, 46. So here's a call to Christian obedience and also a call to Christian ministry. Look at it in verse 19 again. But whoever does them and what? And teaches them. Whoever teaches them. Whoever teaches the scripture does and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, are all Christians expected to teach? And the answer is yes, in a sense. Now, obviously, we don't mean that James 3.1 sense, right? Where you have not every Christian is called to be in this formal role of pastor or shepherd or elder. It's not, we don't mean that, okay? Because it says, let not many of you be that because you come under a stricter judgment. It says, let not many of you do that. But there's another sense. Think Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore. Who's this command for? Go therefore and make disciples. 
baptizing them in what? And teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. See, there's a sense and a make disciple sense that all of us are commanded to teach the word of God. Go make disciples, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. There's a verse, a really, really good verse to store away in your memory. Hebrews chapter five, verse 12. In Hebrews 5, 12, the writer of Hebrews looked at this group of Christians and he says, listen, by this time, he understood some time had gone by. He's not expecting this from a brand new believer, okay? But there's a certain amount of time. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And so there's this sense in which you should feel that, that um, expectation that every Christian, in a sense, in a make disciples sense, is meant to be a teacher of the word of God. And this plays out in a lot of ways. Think about the way this plays out in a family context. In the context of the family. Parents, what are you commanded to do? Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. says, these commands, which I command you today, shall be in your heart, parents, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's no one else's responsibility. It's your responsibility to teach the word to your children. Okay? Or think about it in the church context. In the context of this church, I want to make sure. Here's another good one to store away in your memory. Romans chapter 15. Just listen to this. Romans 15 verse 14. It says this. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and are able to instruct one another. He says you're filled with all knowledge, you're, you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. Brothers, that's a, that's a call for us, that we would be a people at this church that are always in this process of instructing one another. What's it say in Hebrews 3.13? Exhort one another daily while it's called today. Hebrews 10, 24, stir each other up to love and good works. A regular rhythm of your life. Then it doesn't matter if they already know that truth or not. You're right there to say, hey man, this is what's been encouraging my soul. Let me remind you of this truth. Let me instruct you with this truth from the word of God. And so every Christian should be, should be able to do this. Must be moving. If you've if you're just gotten saved, you should be moving in the direction of being able to instruct one another as Christian ministry. And then think about this same thing out to the world. Look out into the world. What is Christian? Every Christian in the room, what's, what's your responsibility toward the world? You've got to teach them the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they believe in him and whom they not heard? How are they going to call on him, on him and whom they not believe? How will they believe in him and whom they not heard? They got to hear it. They got to hear the truth of the gospel and be saved. Go out into the world. And like Proverbs 15, 7 says, a wise man spreads knowledge. Go spread knowledge of the gospel. It's a responsibility for Christian ministry. And so, Grace Community Church, let me... Let me call everyone to this, that this would mark your life. Think about that. Let this be, take take this away and go pray about this. Call out to God to do this, that your life would be marked by doing and teaching, by Christian obedience and Christian ministry, those two things together. Be challenged by this. Uh, Ezra 7.10, 
Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, a good example to look to. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and commands. Let this be a good, a good, a good example to imitate, to study the law of the Lord and do it and teach it like Ezra did. So be challenged by this. Will it be difficult? Of course it'll be difficult. Remember the reward. You'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It says here. Don't you want those? Don't you, don't you long to, to hear those words someday? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't you love that thought of Christ saying that? Of course it gets difficult. But remember the reward. Will you feel insufficient at times? Of course you'll feel insufficient. This is where faith breaks in, where you go, you know what? My God told me to do and to teach. Christian obedience, Christian ministry. He called me into this. I feel so insufficient, but I trust Him. He's interceding on my behalf. He's a good Savior, and He's a good sanctifier. I trust Him. You need, you need some verses for that. You need some verses that, that kill your feelings of insufficiency. You're, you're the, when you feel discouraged in this, you need some scripture that are like haymakers that knock these things out. I'll give you one of mine. John 7, verse uh, 38 and 39. Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it says, And this he spoke about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. So think about that verse. I felt that. I felt insufficient to, to teach God's word. I felt insufficient many times on that. But I take up the scripture. Jesus, you said that if I believe in you, out of my heart will flow rivers of life. Take up those promises and believe them. And get busy with obedience and ministry. Number three. Number three, the way to enter the kingdom. Verse 20. In verse 20 it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, so think about that. We've got a sentence now that's talking about Entering, entering the kingdom of heaven. About becoming a citizen of the kingdom. This is about salvation. We've got a sentence here about salvation, about entering into the kingdom of heaven, it says. So we have a standard for kingdom entrance. What is the standard for kingdom entrance? What, brothers and sisters, what do you need in order to enter, enter the kingdom? Not a passport, not a green card. This says here you need a certain kind of righteousness. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6. The lawless, they don't care about God and His standards, will not enter the kingdom of God. They won't. This says you need some kind of righteousness in order to enter, enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think about how this would have landed on the original hearers. Those here, the folks sitting on that mountain, the disciples and the crowds listening on. How would that phrase have landed on them? I believe they would have been shocked. 
Now, why would they have been shocked? Well, one thing is they viewed the scribes and the Pharisees. These men had a reputation. These are the strict law keepers. And you're saying that our righteousness has to exceed those guys with the reputation of the strict law keepers? I think that would have shocked them. Not to mention what's at stake here. He says, for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's shocking. Not only are you telling me my righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees, but that has to happen for me to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this would have been shocking. So I want us to think about it. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, what kind of righteousness did they have? What kind of righteousness did the scribes and the Pharisees have? Well, we know that. We just, we, if you keep reading, verse 21 through 48, they got that external righteousness, right? They've got that outside, you know, they washed the outside of the cup, not, but the inside's unchanged, right? They've got that sort of righteousness. We see that in, 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 uh, in the following contrast statements. We see it when we get into chapter 6. Where he says, hey, when you pray, don't pray like those hypocrites. He's talking about the Pharisees. Those hypocrites that go out on the street corner and they want to be seen by men. That's the kind of rights they have. Everybody sees it on the outside, but nothing's changed on the inside. They have an external righteousness. Now, what did Jesus think about their righteousness? I want you to think about this. You don't have to flip there, but listen to this. Matthew 23. This is starting in verse 25. It's verse 25 through uh, verse 28. Listen, this is what Jesus thinks about that kind of righteousness, that external righteousness. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous. You outwardly appear righteous, but within... You're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I want you to think about that. What kind of righteousness did they have? They had that kind of righteousness, this external righteousness. So how? So, so this command, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. What does it mean? What does it mean? Let me tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean they did pretty good, but you got to do better. Now, you look at these verses, it clearly doesn't mean that. Now, Jesus doesn't think, man, they're doing pretty good. Y'all just got to do a little better than that. No, no. You need a whole different kind of righteousness. You need a whole different type of righteousness than, than what they have. It must exceed theirs. It's got to be a whole different kind. Okay? It's not the Pharisees got a B, but you need an A plus to go to heaven. They did all right. They got a B. But you need... And A plus. It's not that. It's they had an external righteousness that makes Jesus want to puke. 
You need something totally different than that. You need something that completely exceeds that sort of righteousness. The scripture talks about, it has this phrase, your own righteousness. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I, uh, not, he says, not having a righteousness of my own, my own righteousness. You see, that's what the Pharisees had. Anybody that pursues your, you pursue your own righteousness. I'm going to do it in my own strength to meet up to the standards of God. And then I'll stand before him in judgment and he'll think I'm pretty good. Anybody that does that, that stands on their own righteousness, all they will have is an external righteousness that appears beautiful to everybody around, but inside nothing's changed. Now, I want to answer the question, how to exceed their kind of righteousness. But to do that, or before we do that, we need to understand two things. Okay? Justification and regeneration. Think about these two words. Go with me on this. Justification and regeneration. Now, they're two, two wonderful, beautiful realities for every single believer. If you're here and you're in Christ, you're saved, then you've been justified and you've been regenerated. You've got justification and regeneration. Now, those aren't just like uh, you know, theological words in a systematic theology somewhere. Those are Bible words. You need these words. These are Bible words. You go to Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, and it says that we're saved by the washing of regeneration and justified by His grace. So justification and regeneration. So let's define it. Um, God justifies sinners by faith. Okay? Hear it out. And God regenerates sinners. God does these two things. He justifies sinners and he regenerates sinners. So justification is when the sinner is declared righteous by God. Justification is when the sinner is declared righteous by God. You imagine that, that the righteousness of Jesus, he came to fulfill our righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus gets imputed to the one that has faith in Christ. You know your sin. You know you don't deserve heaven. But Christ's righteousness has been counted. It's been put on your account. That's justification. When, when God declares a sinner righteousness based on the merits of Jesus through faith in Christ. Regeneration, that happens outside of you. But regeneration is what happens on the inside. When, when you get new life, the dead is raised to life. When you get a new heart. When you're born again, that's regeneration. A new heart, a new life, born again. That's something that happens on the inside of you. You need to understand this, justification and regeneration. Now, it helps if you understand the two problems. you got two major problems. One problem's outside of you. That's your sinful record before God. On your record, sins and wickedness and evil that you must give an account for. And in justification, the sin is wiped off, placed on Jesus. He dies for it. And Jesus' righteousness is stamped onto your record. Justification. Regeneration happens inside of you, that other problem, which is a sinful heart. You don't only, not only do you have a sinful record, you've got a sinful heart. And regeneration gets in there and deals with the sinful heart. It takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. In justification, God's a judge that declares you righteous. 
In regeneration, God is a surgeon. He's a heart surgeon that changes your heart. Now, there's an analogy I heard a long time ago, uh, like a college class analogy. Imagine you show up, you're in college, and you show up to a classroom, and this is your hardest class, okay? I don't know, whatever it is, it's just hard. You know, man, this is going to be a tough class. And you show up that morning, and the first thing the teacher says is, everybody in the room, listen to me, you've got an A+. You've got an A right now. Not based off your own merit, no matter what you do from here on out, you have an A, okay? That's like justification. We are justified in Christ, not based off our own merit. Now, what would most people do if that happened? Would you try real hard in the class? No, you might not show up. You don't want to study this material. You don't have to study the material. You've already got an A. And so listen to me. But what if that teacher could also change your heart? And not only does he give you an A from the beginning, but he also gives you a love for the material. And you want to study it. You want to know it. This is like regeneration. This is justification. You get an A from the beginning, but then God also changes your heart and you love the material. It's regeneration. So you're about to see why why, why we're talking about this. Justification, what kind of righteousness do you have? You have an imputed righteousness, a righteousness of Jesus. It's his, it's his righteousness. He did it. It's being counted to you. It's on your account in justification. That's the kind of righteousness you have. In regeneration, what kind of righteousness do you have? In regeneration, it produces in you this heart righteousness. You, you want to obey God. You want to walk with Him. You once loved the darkness of the world. Now you love the light. Regeneration produces not just the counted or imputed righteousness, but it it produces a practical righteousness in your life. A new heart righteousness in your life. Now, here's the question. Let's come back to the question. So if you understand justification and regeneration, how can your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Is it by justification? And the answer is yes. Okay. Your righteousness in justification will exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Think about it. The scribes and Pharisees were pursuing their own righteousness and external righteousness, which is going to lead them to stand before the judgment and go to hell forever. But if you put your trust in Christ, His righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, and you stand before the judgment with the righteous wrapped in the robes of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus is on you in that final day. And so therefore, your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees through justification. But hear me out. That's not what verse 20 is talking about. It's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful gospel truth. But it's not what verse 20 is talking about. Verse 20 It's telling us we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees in that it's a deeper, practical, heart righteousness that can only come through regeneration. We must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. How? We need that, not that external stuff. We need that deep heart righteousness that only comes through regeneration. Okay? Okay. Now, now, you might say, how do you know that? 
How do you know that's the standard being lifted up here? And I'll give you three quick reasons. One, the use of the word righteousness in this context, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it kind of tips us off to this. Think about it. Matthew 5, 6 says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not hunger and thirsting for an imputed righteousness, but, but for a practical living out righteousness. Okay? Matthew 5, 10 says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're not being persecuted because you have an imputed righteousness on you that no one can see. You're persecuted because you live out righteousness. And so this is the way the word is talked about. So when we come to your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees, we're still talking about that practical, lived out heart righteousness. Okay? Second reason. Think about the connection between verse 19 and 20. Okay? So verse 19 those who relax the commandments and teach others are called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those who do them and teach others also are called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 says, for, there's a connection here, okay? So we're talking about obedience to God. And then for, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we're not talking about an imputed righteousness here, as beautiful as that is. We're talking about that practical heart righteousness that flows out of regeneration. And third reason is this. Think about the examples that follow. Okay? I mentioned this several times. He just said, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. Then he goes right into these contrast statements. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm taking you deeper into don't hate. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm taking you deeper into the heart of don't lust. See how he's taking them. This is the kind of righteousness that we're being called to, that we must have to enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's, let me just try to summarize. Here's what's clear from verse 20. Here's what's clear from verse 20. You have got to have some kind of righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are lawless, just live for yourself. I do what I want to do. You will go to hell. That's the path to destruction. Be warned about that. But then there's an alternate path to destruction. There's an alternate path to hell that looks more spiritual. It's go after your own righteousness. Which will look like the Pharisees. This external righteousness. But no regeneration. No heart change. Modern day, it looks like I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm a good guy. I never hurt nobody, right? So I'm going to go to heaven, right? This is what it looks like. And that too is a path to destruction, a path to hell. You must have another kind of righteousness. It exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. It's that righteousness flowing out of regeneration, out of a changed heart that longs to obey God. It wants to obey the one who saved you. So, let me ask everyone this. Have you then, have you been regenerated? Have you been regenerated? And what I mean is, do you have a changed heart? Do you have new life in Christ? Do you have a, cha- do you have a new heart? I love Acts 16, 14. It talks about Lydia. It says, the Lord opened her heart 
You see, her, her salvation was described as God moving in and doing something in her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Now, that doesn't mean that Lydia went throughout her life and she never sinned again or that she was perfect or that she could do it on her own. Now, it doesn't mean that, but something had changed inside of her. Her disposition toward her sin has now changed. She hates it. She doesn't want it. She fights with it. Her disposition towards righteousness changed. She wants to obey her Savior. She wants to obey Jesus. The Lord opened her heart. Has that happened to you? Have you been regenerated? Now, if you hear me ask that question, and you say no, I'm giving you homework right now. Here's what I want you to do. If you say no, you do not believe you've been regenerated. Listen to me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you this week to read the gospel of John. It's about Jesus. And it was written so that you could see who he is and, and decide, are you going to trust him and give your life for him or not? And so I want to encourage you, read John. And I want you to see who Christ is there. I want you to believe Him. I want you to trust Him and express that trust in Christ by calling out to Him for salvation. And God's Word says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you say, yeah, I I know that God has given me a new heart. I know God has changed me. He has regenerated. If you say, yes, worship God for that. You didn't do that. That's not your merit. That heart you've got, I mean, I I know you're like me, so you're not perfect and you see sin in your life all the time and you, you want to be more like Christ, but you know where that desire came from? That came from God. He opened your heart. He did a work of regeneration in you. Be encouraged by that. And as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount and God's standards are being laid out, be encouraged that it's God. In Christ Jesus, who has given you a heart to want to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did this in your life. So worship Him. Now I want to close with this. I want us to think about this, uh, this, this thought, this truth. Regenerate church membership. Okay, now I know this seems random, I'll explain it. Regenerate church membership. Okay. What is that? That's just a church. What do you think about the church? Is, is that they're striving that the membership of a particular local church is striving for regenerate church membership for those that are considered a member of that church to genuinely be converted, to really be saved. In other words, membership is not just something that, you know, just come down front and join the club. No, no. A local church is supposed to be drawn a circle around those that are truly the people of God to make a distinction between them and the world. That's what church membership biblically is. Okay? It's drawn a circle around those that are actually regenerate. So you want to make sure that they are regenerate who join the church. Now, why am I bringing this up? Think about this. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through is giving us the Christian counterculture. It's saying this is what the church looks like. This is what the church looks like. Now, think about this. Can a church do that? Can a church live out the summer on the mount and be unregenerate? Absolutely not. You have the Pharisees' righteousness. So you see this connection that here's the summer on the mount. This is the culture of the church. It's what we're striving for. And to, and to get that, to live that out, you must have, verse 20, a righteousness that's flowing out of regeneration. You must have regenerate church 
membership. So that's the connection here. Now, why is this so important? It's extremely important. There's nothing that destroys the church more than unregenerate church membership. That the church just gives up on this and false conversion infiltrates and it's nominal Christianity all wrapped up into the church and it destroys the church. It's the disease of our time. And nothing dishonors Christ like this. Think how much it honors Jesus when the church lives out the Sermon on the Mount. Think about that. And yet they can't do it. They can't do it if false conversion and unregenerate church takes over. And so I want you to know this. This is something that we highly value and we pursue at Grace Community Church. Now, unfortunately, I think the, the American church uh, at large has, has completely lost sense of this. Okay, That that's part of what the church is supposed to be doing, pursuing regenerate church membership. But this is something that we want to strive for. Now, we strive for this in many ways. Okay, Like, like when we bring members in. It's not just joining a club. We just... You know, we're not laying out some weird standard. It's just, do you understand the gospel? Do you have a Christian testimony? Is it seem clear that you're in Christ? So we bring members in like that. We live out church discipline. At least we desire to faithfully live out church discipline. So that when somebody shows himself to not really be in Christ, we do what 1 Corinthians 5 says. We do what Matthew 8 says. We remove them. We excommunicate them from the church because we're supposed to be protecting this regenerate church Membership. So there's different ways that we do this at the church, but I want to mention one. I just want to mention this, and I want to encourage you in this. I want to challenge you in this, okay? Brothers and sisters, here it is. Don't stop caring diligently for the souls of those in your church and those coming around your church. Don't stop caring diligently for the souls of those in your church and those coming around your church. What I'm talking about here is real soul care, real, real soul care, really caring, not just not just about this thing and that thing out there, but really caring about people's souls, about how they're doing in eternity and how they're doing in their life right now, their soul in Christ. Watching out for one another's souls. Okay, now. I see that all over this church, and I praise God for that. So I'm not, this is not a rebuke, it's not a correction. This is brothers and sisters, more and more. Brothers and sisters, press on. Care deeply for souls that are in this room right now. Care for souls. Now, here's, here's why I say this, because here's the temptation. Here's the temptation. To be a culture, and our, imagine this culture in this church, that just caters to nominal Christianity. That's a temptation for every church to create a culture that just caters to Christianity and name only. To just cater to false conversion, to, to cater to nominal Christianity. There's a temptation to do that by the standards that we live out and hold each other to. Hey, relax those commands. Relax those standards. Why? Because somebody might get uncomfortable. That's catering to nominal Christianity. You see it in your conversation. Hey, don't ask questions. Don't ask the deep questions. Don't have the deep conversation because it might make somebody uncomfortable. You see, that's catering to nominal Christianity. And when you do that, you foster false conversion to the destruction of the church, to the dishonor of Christ. And so my charge to you, brothers and sisters, with this idea of a Christian counterculture that we long for and, and, and the necessity of regeneration, to have that, I want to encourage you. Don't stop caring diligently 
for the souls in this church and for those who come around. Keep asking the deeper questions. Keep having the deeper conversations. It, even if it means that, even if it's a risk, that somebody might get uncomfortable. Listen, did, did you hear the testimonies last week? Did you hear how many of those testimonies, they went through a journey of discomfort with this church before God did a mighty work in their life? One brother said he'd never been around people asking him about how he came to Christ and asking him what he's seeing in the Word, asking him those questions. And it made him uncomfortable at first, but now he's walking with the Lord in maturity. One sister, she said she didn't like people asking her how she came to Christ. She didn't like people asking her what she thought about the sermon, but then she realized she wasn't saved and God saved her soul. They went through a journey of discomfort. Don't be afraid of that. But keep, keep having those conversations. Keep holding out that godly standard that exalts Jesus and puts regeneration on display. Let's pray. God, thank you so much again for these words. Lord, I pray that you help us. Please protect us, Lord, from relaxing your commandments from all the different temptations to do that. Give us hearts that long to obey you. And God, help us to obey you. We know we need you, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. God, give us fruit as we teach your word. Lord, help us to teach our children. Help us to teach and instruct one another. Help us to teach the lost world. God, give us a zeal in our heart for ministry. Lord, we praise you for justification. We praise you, Lord, for regeneration, Lord. God, I worship you. So many of my brothers and sisters all around this room that you have saved, that you have declared righteousness and clean, Lord, and that you have, you're purifying right now in sanctification. What a mighty work you have done and are doing. And we give you praise for it. Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful. Help us to put your saving work on display in this church. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise God from whom all blessings fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and we all say Amen. Amen.